Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for um, the way that you have breathed out these accounts so that we can see uh, you in action and in your struggle as we see here in this text. And Lord, we can learn from you and we can grow as a result of that. Lord, I ask that today you would help us to um, set aside our burdens right now and the, the activities of the day, and you, you would just draw us now into this text, and you'd allow us to be shaped and fashioned by your Holy Spirit through the preaching of your word. Would you be glorified, Lord? We ask this now in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, there are uh, some biblical expressions that find their way into our common English vernacular. Here are just a few. You know, David is coming up against Goliath. You're going to see that kind of a statement um, in the arena of sports, aren't you? Or um, a house divided against itself cannot stand. You probably hear that maybe in the context of politics. Or, you know, something is a drop in a bucket. Again, this is from Isaiah in chapter 40 and verse 15. Or talking about a fly in anointment from the book of Proverbs. Where the idea of, of a scapegoat comes from Leviticus 16. Or, you know, to everything there is a season. I think songs have been written about that. That's Ecclesiastes 3.1. Or the expression, the writing is on the wall, comes from Daniel 5. Now these are all just part of our contemporary vernacular, and yet they are biblical truths or biblical statements that have become commonplace. And today, in our text, there's another statement that is commonplace in our culture, but this is actually where it comes from, and it is that expression, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And according to the dictionary, this expression is used to describe a person who wants to do something but cannot because of a lack of strength. And then right under that, it will say, but it is usually used humorously. In other words, I've been trying to get up early to exercise every morning, but my spirit is willing and my flesh is weak, which means I didn't get up. Or I have been avoiding ice cream and my spirit is willing, but let me tell you, between bites, my flesh is weak. All right? But friends, there is nothing humorous about the text we have before us. There's nothing being made light of in this text. In fact, even at the end of the text, we have a young man running away naked, which maybe at first glance seems humorous, but that's not the point. Mark isn't trying to be humorous. He's not trying to be funny. That's not how he does things. He's trying to make a point. This is the beginning of Jesus' um, passion. We've, we've seen the buildup to it today as we're in this text. We're going to find that he's going to be arrested. And, of course, that arrest results in a trial in different places and then ultimately him going to a cross and suffering and dying in our place. This is not a time for humor. This is a time for serious contemplation. So this expression, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, is spoken by Jesus to his sleeping disciples when they're supposed to be watching 
It is both an expression of confrontation and of comfort. And it will help us to see that it's a necessary part of Mark's gospel account. Let's just talk a little bit about the structure of the text because we're actually not going to focus on all of this text that Steve read this morning. What we have here is a sandwich text, which is very typical for Mark. Mark likes to do this. He'll start a story, he'll insert another story, and he'll finish the story. Uh, he's done that a few times, you may recall. But so what we have here is it begins with a prediction, and then the failure of the disciples, and then sandwiched in there um, is the betrayal of Judas. And that betrayal, we won't look at today so much, except maybe to mention it in the, in the flow of what's going on here. But there's this kind of beginning and end part, which is the, the, the failure of these disciples to do what he is asking them to do. There's this prediction then that is played out, and there's going to be a comparison between Jesus and his faithfulness and the disciples and their failure. And just consider that as we continue on here. Let's look, first of all, at the prediction, at the prediction. Um, it says uh, in verse 27, And Jesus said to them, You will fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Now notice he says, You will fall away. Now just pause a little bit and think about this. The disciples have been with Jesus for about three and a half years. He has been teaching them, showing them, encouraging them, spending time in, in private conversations with them. And now he's saying to them, you're going to fall away. You're going to run away. You're going to abandon me. And then he quotes Zechariah in his prophecy, which is in the Old Testament, and he says... I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And friends, that is what this text is talking about. The events of this text are an outflow of that particular quotation from Zechariah. There's the striking of the shepherd, the arrest, the trial, the beating, the flogging, the mocking, the scoffing, the crucifixion of Jesus. And then there is the scattering of the sheep. The failure and the falling away of the disciples as Jesus faces and endures his suffering and death. So as we consider this text, it is critical for us to understand that Jesus is calling us to be resolute as we pursue living our lives as his disciples. Now, to be resolute means that we have a firm determination to pursue our calling. In other words, we're saying, we are going to do this. We're going to be resolute about what God has called us to do. We're going to be determined to grow as followers of Christ. We're going to be firm in our commitment toward Christ's likeness. That is what he is calling us to. And so let's first of all look at the fact that Jesus is resolute. Jesus is resolute. Now, three times, Jesus has clearly prophesied what is about to happen to him. Just look in Mark's gospel. Look at Mark chapter 8, and um, we're just going to quickly review these because I think it's helpful to see the flow of what's going on here. Mark chapter 8, in particular, verse 31. 
And here's what it says. And he, that's Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then over in chapter 9 and verse 31, we have the second prophecy that Jesus gives, or the second statement that he gives in Mark's gospel, and it says this. The Son of Man is going to be delivered to the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And then chapter 10 and verse 33, um, that's not right. Um, verse 30, yeah, verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And the disciples really don't get it. At the first statement, Peter is rebuking Jesus because he's like, no, 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 you, that's not what's going to happen. And then Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter, right? And the disciples, even as Jesus is repeating himself and is giving more detail as he's giving these statements, um, they still don't quite get it. But Jesus gets it. He knows what he will face when he gets to Jerusalem. And now, Zechariah 13, 7 is what he quotes because he understands what he will be facing. He knows that the text says, I will strike the shepherd, and he knows that is referring to him. He is going to be struck. He is going to be the object of that prophecy. So notice, first of all, how Jesus is abandoned by his friends. Throughout this Gethsemane passage, we see the disciples' inability to stay awake and hang with Jesus as he anticipates his suffering. And when he's going through the agony, contemplating the cup that he is going to have to, to drink and what he's going to have to face through suffering, they may be present, but they are of no use. You know, so he, he has been pouring into them for three and a half years, but they cannot endure staying awake when he is at his most vulnerable position. His friends are there, but he is alone in the garden. Staggering picture, really, when you think about it. But also notice how Jesus anticipates his coming suffering. Jesus looks deeply into the cup, into the cup before him, and, and, and he's taken aback by what he sees. So, so much so that um, he says to the disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. And then when he goes to the Father praying that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him and appealing to the Father, he says this, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Now, what's the point of all this? Jesus in his humanity is beginning now to face up to what is before him. He's not saying, you know, Father, just, just remove this whole plan. Let's stop it now. He is expressing the depth of the pain and the suffering and the anticipation of what he's going to have to go through. Yes, the Father has the power to change the plan, but Jesus knows that he's not going to. You still have to go through with this. So what is it that Jesus sees when he looks into the cup? First of all, 
I would say this. He, he, he looks into the cup and he sees a cup full of man's sin. He sees a cup, in this cup, an utter cesspool of sin through the ages. We're talking about the sin of mankind. Just ponder that thought. Let me make a few statements here to help you kind of think through what is in that cup. Man's anger and hatred that leads to murder. Countries and empires that have ravaged the countryside. The killing fields of their conquests and their personal gain are there throughout history to read about. He sees rape and sexual abuse of every kind and pornography and the horror of those who are the victims of sex trafficking. He, he sees uh, jealousy, envy, covetousness, selfishness. He sees a deception, backbiting, slander, theft, bitter hatred, rebellion against God. And it's all swirling around in this cup. And he is recoiled at the sinfulness of sin. It is a cesspool so vile and offensive, so vast and overwhelming, so powerful and destructive. Now, friends, it's hard for us to imagine what Jesus is seeing. It's hard for us to, to feel the weight of what Jesus is seeing and what he is feeling when he sees that. But I have two personal experiences. I'm sure you have your own, but let me share mine, and maybe at other times you can share yours. In 2006, I went to Israel. It was a great trip. Got to see a lot of the sites. But one of the places I went to was the Holocaust Museum. Now, if you've ever been to a Holocaust Museum, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's something you go to because you know you must. <laughs> and you walk into this museum and you begin to take in pictures that are horrific. And yet, you don't want to look at them, but you know you must. You know that you watch a video, and it's a video of things that are so, too detestable to even uh, to write down or even to talk about, but you know you must take it in because you need to see the evils that have taken place among mankind. The atrocities of sinful men. And if you have a human heart that cares for mankind, you leave that place resolved in your heart not to, to forget as well as uh, making sure that you would be one who stands up against such vile and sinful acts like that against mankind. It's a horrible, horrible thing. And you must. I mean, you don't go to a Holocaust museum then afterwards say, hey guys, let's go get pizza. No, you walk out in silence contemplating Simple things like the clean clothes you're wearing and the food you have in your tummy you had for breakfast or whatever it might be, or just the freedoms that you have. It's not something to be cavalier about at all. Another one very similar to this is when I was in Ukraine a couple of years ago. We went to the Hunger Museum in, in Kiev, a museum that memorializes between seven to 10,000 Ukrainians who died during a forced famine placed on them by Stalin. The people who died were, were forced to grow their crops, but they would be killed if they ate any of those crops. Even a grain could result in your death. And it was a forced famine, and it was a deliberate tool that he used to, to just 
rip apart that country. And you learn as you go along, and you're staggered by what you see, and it becomes even more staggering when you find out that the biggest importer of grain from Russia and Ukraine at that time was the United States of America. Because we had just gone through a depression, a famine, and we needed food. It's just, it's staggering, friends. And you, your, your heart just breaks. Now, that's, that's nothing. That is nothing compared to what Jesus sees when he looks into the cup. It is a cup of sin. Just imagine what he sees. Not only does he see a cup that is full of sin, he sees that a, a cup that is full of God's wrath. He sees a fresh that he would bear the penalty for that sin. So it's not just seeing the sinfulness of sin, but then seeing what he would then be doing in hanging on that cross, recognizing what he would bear on his shoulders. He would become the object of God's wrath against that sin. And that's why 2 Corinthians 5.21, which we quote a lot, needs to be understood with that greater uh, perspective of this sin. It says... He, the Father, made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, that is Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is looking into that cup, but he's recognizing that, that the solution for, for that sinful cup is the wrath of God, but that wrath was not going to be poured out on the sin, that wrath was going to be poured out on him. And as the object of the Father's wrath, Jesus would fulfill the words of Moses, Deuteronomy 21, 23, and he would become a curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's Galatians 3, 13. And so Jesus looks into the cup of sin and the cup of wrath, and he sees the abyss of hell, and he staggers. And back in Mark 14, 35, it says, and he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. You see, in his humanity, he's going to this cross. He's looking at what he has to do, and it is a weight that we cannot even imagine. My friends, too much of American Christian culture has a a jaded view of Christ. He's often portrayed as someone who's so gentle and meek that he wouldn't hurt a flea. At other times, he's an all-powerful, mean, and vengeful God who will bring judgment on anyone he doesn't like. And there are elements of truth in both of those statements, but they're extremes. He is gentle. He is meek. He is an all-powerful God who stands for true justice and a bringer of just judgment. Yes, he is. But what we see here is that Jesus, in his humanity, comes face to face with the sinfulness of mankind and the just wrath of God, and it is a horror that is overwhelming. Why else would he say, if it's possible, <laughs> remove this cup? You see, this is no small thing that Jesus is doing here in the garden. It's no small thing at all. And that is what verse 33 is telling us. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. The word greatly distressed in verse 33 
is a Greek word that is often translated to strike. <laughs> you see the connection there. And in this context, it has the idea of being in the grip of sudden horror in the face of the dreaded prospect before him. The word trouble literally means to be in anguish. So here is Jesus. He is horrified by what he has to do. He's in anguish. Now the question is, what does he do? What does he do having looked into that cup? He goes to the Father in prayer. That's the first thing that happens. Let's read verses 32 through verse 36. It says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it was possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all these things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, in addition to what Mark says here, that Jesus fell to the ground, Luke says that he first went to his knees. Matthew says that he fell on his face. And so you can just imagine, here he is looking into the cup, and he is staggering down to his knees, down onto his face. And Jesus repeated his prayers out loud, so likely the three inner circle, Peter, James, and John, could hear what he was saying and the writer of Hebrews speaks to this when he says, Hebrews 5, 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Listen, Jesus understands what it's like to face incredible difficulty and struggle. He's felt it. He knows it. He understands it. And so three times we're told here that he leaves his disciples and prays, and it's observable, especially to Peter and James and John, that Jesus is in agony as he is in prayer. They're likely hearing his repeated words and his distress and his troubled nature a distress that was evident, as Luke would record it, by sweat drops of blood. I must confess that when I read this account of Jesus praying, I found my own prayer life to be lacking. It feels woefully inadequate, woefully insignificant. Jesus feels the weight of what he's praying for. You know what it's like, friends. We have prayer requests, and we may be faithful in praying, but they're, they're, they're kind of like check boxes on a, on a line. And we kind of say, and Lord, pray, we, we pray for this family, and we pray for this person who's struggling with this, and we pray for this. And, but, but Jesus prays with, with, with passion, feeling the weight about the things that he's praying for. So I want you to consider this. When someone is suffering, do you pray with the weight of that suffering in mind? When someone is lonely or struggling with anxiety, do you feel the weight of what they're going through so that your prayers 
are not just reciting a, a, a list, but a heartfelt pleading before God? When someone is in deep despair, do you sense the depth of that despair and let it shape your prayer for that person? Or is it simply getting through the list? And I just am challenged personally to be praying with the weight of what this person is going through and feeling and following the example of Christ here. So he goes to the Father in prayer. That's the first thing that he does. But secondly, he also then ultimately submits to the Father's will. Look at verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Listen, Jesus has not sinned in any of this struggle. But he is struggling with his humanity. He's struggling with what he has to go through. And he fights his way through that struggle by prayer. And ultimately, Submitting to the Father's will. Listen, doing the will of the Father was Jesus' lifelong passion on this earth. We see it when Jesus went into the, the temple at age 12. His parents had lost him in the Passover crowd and only found him three days later in the temple. And, and they said to him, you know, well, what are you doing here? And, and he says to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I, w- I must be in my Father's house? In other words, This is where I'm supposed to be. And then a little later, we see it in Jesus' ministry. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then John's gospel, we read, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but but the will of him who sent me. So this passion to do the will of the Father throughout his life is now culminating at this moment while he is looking into the abyss of the cup of sin and wrath. And so he prays, he communes with the Father, and he submits himself to the Father's will. This is a great picture of obedience. It's a great picture of fighting your way through some difficulty or struggle and finally submitting to what you know is already true. So it's a display of obedience, not just the death, but the the sin of mankind, the the ultimate curse, the, the full wrath of the Father on the shoulders of the pure, spotless lamb. Jesus looks into the cup that causes him to stagger and says, not what I will, but what you will, Father. And friends, this is a good paradigm for us, isn't it? We're fainting, facing something that's daunting. It seems so simplistic. Pray <laughs> and submit to the Father's will. <laughs> you, say, Pat, you could have just said that, Pastor. We could have moved on to the next point. Except there's a certain kind of praying. And there's a certain kind of submission to the Father. This is a serious praying. And a wholehearted commitment to the will of the Father. So it's not a bad paradigm to say, God, I don't know what you're doing with this sickening mess that you're going through, but I want to do your will no matter what. It's a good prayer. It's simple. But it's leaning on him. So what we find here is Jesus, and he's, he's, he's resolute to do the Father's will. 
and he is going to be faithful to carry it out. Now, having looked at Jesus, our perfect example, we turn to the disciples. The disciples are resolute. Now, we need to go back to that prediction, and we need to see that prediction that says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So the beginnings of the strike against the true shepherd have begun. Now we see the sheep now beginning to be scattered. And I'd like to think of three headings that kind of just show the flow in the text of where this is taking place. But just backdrop that with the fact that these disciples have been with Jesus for three and a half years. They've seen his powerful ministry up close and personal. They've been sent out by him, and they've done great miracles, but they've also had times when there's been great failure. And Jesus has been teaching them along the way. Now, you could say that the second overarching theme of the Gospels is the training of the disciples. The first one would be, this is a story about Christ. But the other theme that's going along is, while this is a story about Christ, what is Jesus doing? Ultimately, it's not about healing these people and casting out all these demons, although that's part of his purpose. It is all part of Jesus training these disciples while he is going about his father's business, while he is doing his father's will. So what do we see here? First of all, we see the disciples boasting. Now verse 29. This is after Jesus predicts what's going to happen. Of course, who's the first one to speak? Welcome, Peter, right? Here's Peter. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now, we're not going to be able to finish that. That'll happen a little bit, but that will be fulfilled. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. So let me just put it in more kind of contemporary terms. Peter, you will fall. Peter says, no, I won't. Jesus says, yes, you will. You'll deny me three times before the morning. And Peter says, Jesus, I will die before I fall away. And the rest of the disciples say, yeah, what Peter says. I mean, they're following his lead. Now, I'm not questioning Peter's heart here. I actually think that Peter is genuine in saying what he's saying. This is his desire. I think he actually meant what he said, and I think the other disciples followed his lead and said what Peter said or affirmed what Peter said because they meant it too, not knowing exactly what that all meant. But there is a certain pride in the statement, isn't there? There's a misguided self-confidence. When Peter says, I will not deny you, it's really an unrealistic assessment of his weakness and the power of indwelling sin within his own heart. And we'll see him come face to face with that in a few weeks. But it should remind us that we can say some pretty bold things without actually being realistic. Lord, I promise that I will not speak to my children in anger again. You know, those dumb children, right? Lord, I won't click on that porn site again. Lord, I promise that I will talk to that person right away and seek their forgiveness for what I said to them. 
Or, or Lord, I, I, I promise that I will give more in the offering plate from now on. And all, it starts out well. Then life happens. The focus of attention is turned to other things. And these promises that you've decided seem to dissipate and you fall flat on your face again. But you said, I won't. And I will. And I promise. And then you find yourself picking up the pieces, putting your nose back in shape. And you're wondering what's going on. I remember in my younger years working at camp, we would sing the song, I Have Decided. Anyone here remember that song? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And then it kind of builds, though none go with me, still I will follow. The next stanza says, the world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back, no turning back. And people sang it. I think people meant it. But I wonder how many people have sung that song with a genuine heart, but since then they have turned back. And what happens then? How do we reconcile that? You see, this is what's happening here with the disciples. There's boasting. I will not. And even when Jesus challenges, says, listen, even if I have to die, I will not deny you. There's boasting. Secondly, there's failure. All throughout this text, just failure. And this is not the only time there's been failure. There's been failure among the disciples already, but this is, you know, Jesus has already prefaced what, he's, what these disciples are going through now with some teaching that took place in Mark chapter 13, the Olivet Discourse. If you remember, at the end of that um, that teaching, we're in Mark 13 and verse 34 and following. Here is what he says. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands that the doorkeeper stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning. Now, what we're going through with this passion story is what? In the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, or in the morning. Lest, it says, he comes suddenly and finds you what? Asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. All right? Almost immediately now, here they are in Gethsemane, and Jesus is saying to them, hey, I'm going to go pray. You stay awake. I mean, let's just, just walk through this here, right? Verse 32. He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. Verse 33, and he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch. And then verse 37, and he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon. Now, there's a little nuance there, right? He said to Peter, Simon. Just ponder that. Why didn't he say to Peter, Peter? This is, this is old Peter. This is, he's, he's, he's already begun to, to stumble here, right? Simon, are you asleep? Well, he probably says, I'm not now, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? 
Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 39, and again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. So he's repeating himself. He's going again. And verse 40, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Again. In verse 41, and he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? I mean, do you see the progression here from chapter 13? Stay awake, stay awake, stay awake. Now let's go to the garden. Stay awake while I pray, you know, snooze. They can't even stay awake. How in the world are they going to stand true for Christ? They can't even stay awake. He says, are you still sleeping, taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. In other words... This is the time. We can stop this now. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my brother is at hand. So here in Gethsemane, the disciples were to show their loyalty to their master by keeping awake and praying with him. And while he's agonizing in the garden, his disciples are sleeping. This idea of watching has nothing to do with observing signs and stuff like that. It has to do with faithfulness, with loyalty, with prayer, with obedience. And what we see here is that Jesus is resolute to choose faithfulness. And the disciples are also resolute, but they fail miserably. They're resolute in their words, but they fail with their actions. And that must have been a humiliating lesson that showed their weakness. No one likes to have their weakness exposed, do they? So we have boasting. We have failure. Now, if we move to the end of this story, this is what happens after this betrayal section. Notice what we have. We have flight. They boasted confidently they would not fall away, but were willing to die for Jesus if necessary, but they fail miserably in the garden. But now it says in verse 50, and they all left him and fled. They abandoned him. They fled. Now I think it's important to recognize this here. They all flee. This is a staggering statement, isn't it? I mean, those who were just boasting now are all running. Peter fled, James and John fled, Nathaniel, Andrew, Matthew fled, James the Lesser, Thaddeus, Philip, they run away, Simon the Zealot, and Thomas, they both fled. The irony is the only one of the 12 standing with Jesus is Judas, the one who betrays him with a kid. He doesn't flee. His heart has already abandoned Jesus. He had lived, eaten, spoken casually with Jesus. He, he ministered alongside Jesus. He had listened to his teaching and watched 
as bodies were healed and demons were cast out and people were raised from the dead, but now his heart is dead. It's filled with selfishness, but he's there showing affection to Jesus while all the other disciples that have affirmed their commitment to him, they're taken off into the bushes and into the street. a sad picture, isn't it? Except for the fact that if we are to look in this text and, and to say, what, what are we supposed to do and, and where do we identify? I think we probably identify ourselves with those disciples that are taken off. But then we have this strange account in Mark's gospel here in the story. It just seems like, where did this come from? It says, there's this another young man that Mark mentions. At first glance, it's, it's humorous until you realize the weight of this story. It says, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So who is this young man? Now, without going into too much detail, I believe confidently that this is Mark, the writer of the gospel, who's talking about himself. Because Mark has a tendency to write in anonymity about anything that has to do with him. Um, now, why include it here at the end of this encounter? Let me present to you what I think is going on here. I think in this text, what we have is what is often called a top and a tail. There's something at the beginning of this passage, and there's something at the end of this passage that helps now to, to those who are reading, those who are listening, those who are seeking to understand what is taking place, take shape, and the emphasis then comes as a result of what is happening with these top and tail. In other words, it's kind of like bookends, the beginning and the end. So we don't want to overlook them. I have deliberately not emphasized this at the beginning, but I want you to look again at the beginning in verse 27 and 28, and I want you to look for words of hope and encouragement. It says, and Jesus said to them, you will fall away. You will fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after that, or after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And what's going on there? Jesus is saying, I'm going to be, I'm going to receive the striking hand. You are going to be scattered. But I'll see you again in Galilee. Just think about that. Jesus is telling them beforehand that they will fail, but he is also telling them that he will be reunited with them in Galilee. Yes, Jesus is the one who would suffer, be crucified, and rise again on the third day, but while all that is happening, his disciples will be refined by the fire of these events. Their failure is part of their growth and discipleship. Jesus is not giving up on them, but he's telling them, this is what's going to happen to you. <laughs> but I'll see you in Galilee. The tale, which would be the other side, is now we have this, this young man who's fleeing, and he's fleeing naked. How does all that fit into this paradigm? Certainly, Mark's not, he's not trying to get a laugh here. He's not trying to, to somehow um, you know, catch these people by something humorous. 
So here's what I think is going on. I want you, first of all, to consider who this person is that is writing this gospel speaking about himself. It is Mark. It is the one we know as John Mark. And if you remember, John Mark went out with Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey. And in the middle of that missionary journey, John Mark says, enough, I can't do this anymore. And he leaves. And a little bit later, when they want to go on a second missionary journey, Paul says, I am not going out with Mark. Why? Because he abandoned us. He ran away. He departed. He fell away. And Barnabas says, let him come with me. See, it's Mark who abandoned his mission work when the going got tough. And Mark is saying, I know what it's like to run away from Jesus. I have been there. I have been a failure, and it's no less shameful, but I heard the invitation to return to serving the Lord. The disciples fled, but they meet up with Jesus in Galilee. I came back, and so can you. Now, you have to kind of wrestle your thoughts about, all right, Mark was in the garden. He's also with Paul and, 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 uh, and Silas as they go out, or Paul and Barnabas as they go out. And, and oh, what is going on here? One who is abandoned is ultimately restored. Jesus is resolute and faithful to do the Father's will. The disciples are resolute, but they fail miserably. But their failure isn't the end. It's part of the journey of testing and trial that Jesus was sending them on. And it's through this journey that they are refined. Each one of them would learn from their experience with Jesus during the Passion Week. And it would strengthen them. And it would embolden them for the ministry that God had called them to do. They would be scattered again. But they would be scattered to take the word of God to places outside of Jerusalem and Judea. And ultimately to places in the uttermost parts of the world. Now, the disciples are resolute. And let's finish this up here. The church must also be resolute, and I want to add this, and realistic. We must do all we can to fix our eyes on the prize, but be honest about the struggle to reach that prize. We must run the race with endurance, looking for the finish line, but we be, be humble enough to realize that we may stumble along the way. We must be people of faith who understand that at times our faith will waver. We must be people who guard the gospel. We're commanded to do that, but we're also people who will at times shrink back from being bold with that same gospel. Let's just consider some passages of Scripture that will help us on our journey of discipleship, that give a balance to what we need. Give us some counsel. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Paul has been listing some bad examples of what happened with the people of Israel while they were in the, in the wilderness wandering. And he warns his readers, the Corinthian church, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 
You think you're something, you think you're that spiritual just because you're in ministry of leadership, just because you're, you, you, know, you have a certain position in the church or, or you're respected in your family, does not mean that you will not be tempted and that you cannot fall. You're only this far away from committing the worst kind of sin. The only thing that's holding you back from doing that are all the things that God has put in you to say, that's not the direction you want to go. That's not the direction you want to go. The Holy Spirit ministers to us through his word and restrains us from actually fulfilling the lust that we have in our hearts. So don't think that you're above it. You're not. And sometimes we do. We fall flat on our face. This is the illustration I think that's helpful here is this is like a person trying to stand up in a canoe. You try and stand up in a canoe, oh, you'll be able to stand for a little bit, but a little bump along the way, you're in the water. That's the idea here. Secondly, Romans 9 or 719. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. And this is so helpful because he's, he's so passionate about doctrine and obedience and righteousness and truth. And yet at the same time, he says, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Anyone relate to that? So we, we, we need counsel like that because it's so easy for us to have this, I've got to be like Christ, and if I, if I just, I'm off a little bit, I'm done for. And I'm not saying don't be like Christ, but it's also saying be realistic. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The writer of Hebrews has just given evidence through the Old Testament record of men and women who are people of faith. And then he says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from, uh, from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Well, why would we grow weary? Why would we be faint-hearted? Because of the sin that is entangling us? The scripture continues to give instruction about pressing on or walking in a manner worthy of the gospel or putting off and putting on. And they're, all, they're realistic in telling us that we're on a journey and these commands and these instructions will come with times of refining and times of testing. But we're to count it all joy, as James says, when we're tested and tried, when the refiner's fire visits our world. We need to recognize that as much as we want to be like Jesus, we're not. We may sing songs that express our great love for him. Oh, Lord, I love you so much. I want to live my life for you. And then, you know, you're on your way home and someone cuts you off. These are opportunities. I mean, even if that happens, it's an opportunity to say, okay, Lord. You're telling me something here. 
So this is all part of the sanctification process. He's not looking for perfection in us, but he is looking for us to pursue and to grow and to becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Ultimately, each time we fall, God wants us to get up. He wants us to be honest about our sinfulness, to acknowledge it for what it is, to confess it to him, to repent again and again and again, and to get back at it. Friends, the Bible is littered with examples of believers who fall. The drunkenness of Noah, the lying of Abraham, the adultery of David, the anger of Moses, the pride and recklessness of Samson. They're all beacons that say, if the mighty can fall so tragically and publicly, then surely, my friends, you and I can fall too. But that isn't the end. Now, it may have some consequences that are natural. But that doesn't necessarily mean that your, your pursuit of Christ's likeness is done for. So we can be encouraged by the words of Solomon in Proverbs. And I've kind of restated it a little bit here um, to make it smoother. But this is what he says. He's just been talking about a righteous man. So, so for though a righteous man falls seven times, he will rise again. Part of the demonstration that you are a child of God pursuing Christ is that when you fall flat on your face, what happens? You get up. You confess your sin. You repent of that sin. You, you find solutions for that sin from brothers and sisters in Christ, from counselors, whatever it might be, and you press on once again to run the race. And then you fall down again. And what do you do? You get up. And while you're getting up and after you've confessed and you repented, you evaluate, hey, why, why did I fall? What happened that led me to the place that I fall? Because I don't want to do that again. And slowly, over time, you will grow in maturity and dealing with life issues. You're growing to become more and more like Jesus Christ. So one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is this. Do we have a right view of discipleship? In other words, do we think that discipleship is simply uh, uh, making gradual process to become more and more like Christ without falling flat on our faces in sin? No. Discipleship is full of trials and tests where God is putting us through the refiner's fire. He's testing our failure and are working together to fashion and shape us for what he is calling us to do. That's why James says here, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. In other words, mature, lacking nothing. All these are means by which you are growing. So the second question we have to ask ourselves, not just do we have a right view of discipleship, is this. How are we to be interacting with the body of Christ as it relates to discipleship? Now, this is important, friends. Hear this. Do we have room for falling flat on your face in sin? Now, if you're the one that fell flat on your face in sin, you're saying, I hope so. Because I want to be a part of a body of Christ that cares enough about me that can help pick me up and move me in the direction where God wants me to go. Rather than saying, you fell flat on your face in sin. Look at you. You're not worthy. You can't rise up. Okay? Are we simply performance and conformity driven that we can't see the importance of growth in Christ-likeness? 
Do we treat each other with grace and, and mercy and understanding when we find out that a brother or sister falls in sin? Are we then eager to pray for one another, in particular for those who have fallen down, that God would use that failure to help strengthen and encourage their pursuit of Christ and prepare them for what God has yet in store for them? Now, I'm not advocating here, let's just be free and careless about our understanding of sin. It's all, ah, okay, you know, you sit, ah, that's good, all right, all right, just get up and get going. No, no, we take it seriously. And we deal with sin seriously. We, we do what God says. We say it is sin. We confront that sin. We confess that sin. We repent of that sin. But we rejoice in the forgiveness that we get because of Christ. And as a body, we encourage one another. Listen, don't, don't just kind of go to the side and hide in the corner or put yourself on a shelf and think you're not useful. God still has something planned for you. And we're here to help you accomplish that. Peter and the disciples failed on this day, but there would be a reconciliation with Jesus in Galilee. And eventually they would go out and serve him in great boldness and power. That is why I love the Apostle Paul. He says in his last letter to 2 Timothy, he says this to, to Titus, uh, sorry, to Timothy, and he instructs Timothy with these words, bring Mark, for he's useful to me. Now, those are just so, those are sweet words, friends. The one who abandoned, who Paul didn't want to have around, now he's saying, of all the people that you could bring to me as I am about to die, it's Mark. God is in the business of using weak, frail, Sinful people. And through repentance and forgiveness, he restores us to usefulness. I want to close with a story about a man named Thomas Cranmer, a reformer who was martyred in Oxford. He's burned at the stake. Six months before he was martyred, um, he saw his friends Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer burned, standing faithfully for the truth of what they believed in, this new understanding, a refreshing understanding of the true gospel. But Queen Mary, as we know, Bloody Mary, had been gathering up those who were reformed in their understanding and was sending them to be executed. But she didn't execute Cranmer right away. She put him in jail. And she sought, by virtue of putting him in jail, to plead with him, to send people in, to plead with him to recant his position. Obviously, there's a political motivation to do that. And for, for six months, he refused, he refused, he refused. But then eventually, on Mark, March 19th, 1556, after uh, weeks of this pressure, being all alone, they put a a recantation letter that was already written, and all he had to do was sign it, and so he picks up the pen, and wanting just relief, signed his name. And after he did that, just like Peter, he broke down, and he wept, and he wept, and he wept. There was the promise that if you sign this, that you would be released. Of course, that didn't happen. Two days later, he was burned at the stake. And here, here's what the observers of that 
execution reflect on? It says that he was bound to the stake with a steel band around his waist, and the fire was kindled at his feet. The fire leapt up, but he stretched out his arm, and he held his right hand in the flame, and there he held it without flinching until eventually it was burned and a stump. And while he was doing that, he said, this hand hath offended. Because that's a pretty gruesome story, Pastor Rod, to end with. See, Cramer recognized that he failed in his humanity. But he was quick to recognize his failure. Some people can only endure so much. And so he was willing to suffer his hand before he suffered in his whole body in a way to say to God, forgive me. I'm sure that he did that before he went to the stake. But God uses the Cranmers and the Peters and the disciples of this world who in moments of temptation and crisis fall away to their weakness. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But Jesus understands that. Lord, help us that we would have a tone in the context of our church that would embrace failure, that would encourage getting up again through confession, repentance, and restoration. That we would not be a people who look down our noses, but instead people who reach out our hands. We would not try and create some idealistic view of what it means to be a follower of Christ, that we would be balanced, resolute to do your will, realistic in understanding that we will fail many times in doing your will. Only you, Lord, are truly faithful. We look to your example. We see what you had before you. And we, Lord, if we had to bear that same weight, we would fail miserably, miserably, miserably. We couldn't handle it. And yet you faced it, felt it, and you submitted to it. And you walked to that cross, humbling yourself before the will of the Father. You bore the wrath of your Father, Lord, that paid for our sin. Oh, Lord, we want to be like you. That is our desire. That is our pursuit. But, Lord, we, we fall short. But help us, Lord, to grow, to be honest about our sin, to be honest about our struggle. And, Lord, as a result of that, be moved to be more like your son day by day. 
May that tone, may that sensitivity, may that encouragement, Lord, just be blowing in and out of Gateway Bible Church, Lord. And Lord, may we be a people who care enough for one another that we would be willing to nurture and help and strengthen those who have fallen. Because next week it might be us and we will need the help of the body. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace and your understanding. Oh, Lord, we want to serve you. <laughs> we want to be faithful. But in our humanity, Lord, sometimes it is hard. And you know that. Thank you, Lord, for, for understanding. May we now live our lives for you. In your